The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled When Statins Strike Out, Using PCSK9 Targeting Strategies to Achieve Lipid Goals and Reduce Cardiovascular Risks in Patients with Hyperlipidemia. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EEG 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Scott Wright, a professor of medicine and cardiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we are going to discuss treatment of dyslipidemia, and especially when patients are not responding as much as we need them to, to statin therapy. So we've entitled this presentation, When Statins Strike Out, using PCSK9 targeting strategies to achieve lipid goals and reduce cardiovascular risks in patients with hyperlipidemia. First part of this talk is going to be about the challenges we face with patients who have elevated blood lipids. And we've entitled it, Turning Challenges into Opportunities, Recognizing the Gaps and Meeting the Unmet Needs in the Care of People with Hyperlipidemia. We've observed a favorable but modest decline in lipid values over the last two decades in the United States. But as these slides demonstrate, while the lipids have fallen modestly, they remain elevated based upon what we know about the natural history risks of elevated blood lipids. So there is really more work to be done. Women tend to have slightly higher total cholesterols and HDL values than men, while men tend to have higher triglyceride values. Likely the triglycerides reflect diet and lifestyle choices much more than HDL and cholesterol values do. We know that the foundation for treating dyslipidemia remain two things, diet and statins. Statins have been proven quite effectively in primary and secondary prevention. In primary prevention, many studies from the 1990s and 2000s have shown that statins can reduce the risk of myocardial infarction by 28% or so, the risk of stroke by 20%, and cardiovascular death is reduced by about 17%. We also know that in patients who have suffered an atherosclerotic cardiovascular event, who need secondary prevention, that more intense statin doses are better than moderate or weakly intense statin doses because they reduce endpoints more, and that higher adherence to the prescribed statin therapy, whatever the dose, is associated with lower mortality for individual patients. We know that statins tend to work in as little as one year, some would argue maybe sooner, and that the greatest benefit and likely the fastest benefit are in the highest risk subgroups. And that most of our patients, at least 90 to 95%, will tolerate them without symptoms. Now, we know that maybe even 15% of patients will complain of symptoms, but many times those are unrelated to statins, and true statin muscle intolerance is closer to 5%. Despite the great evidence with statins, we see primary prevention treatment gaps persisting. What we can say is that almost three out of four patients with an elevated 10-year risk of having an atherosclerotic cardiovascular event are not using statin therapy. This slide taken from a study published by Jacobs and colleagues in JAMA shows the prescription and use of statins by ethnic background. White patients were the reference 
And it seems that Asian Americans, Black Americans, and Hispanic Americans are much less prescribed and certainly are taking much less frequently statins that are prescribed. You can see that across the risk threshold that various groups are just not being treated appropriately. And these findings really indicate that racial and ethnic disparities in the use of statins for primary prevention are associated likely with poor access to care of individuals who have self-reported on this data set, which is a major challenge for all of us in our practices and in our advocacy to work on. With regard to secondary prevention, nearly two-thirds of patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease are untreated with any lipid-lowering therapy. You can see that someone with a recent AECS, 50 to 70% of patients are untreated. Those numbers are comparable for patients with ischemic stroke, PAD, other coronary heart disease, and the total atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease burden. Patients who are at high risk and at very high risk, who are the low-hanging fruit for intensified statin therapy, are not even getting one prescribed or are not taking one that has been prescribed. And this is indeed a huge treatment gap for our patients. Women are less likely than men to receive high-intensity statin therapy post-MI. We're not sure why, but likely it's concerns about developing muscle symptoms and rhabdomyolysis. One can see in, in this the percent of patients who were given high-intensity statins versus low-intensity statins, and that women were much more likely to be given low- to moderate-intensity statins following a myocardial infarction. And again, it's not because they have substantially lower lipid values. I think it's really more of a gender bias situation where we are just hesitant to treat women because of concern for muscle symptoms. So, you know, why is managing hyperlipidemia so difficult or hard? Well, there are certainly prescriber and patient factors listed on this slide. A number of the prescriber factors really boil down to inadequate time that we have or just being overwhelmed with the complexities of our patients and trying to prioritize what we talk about today that may be the most immediate concern to them. And then there are patient factors, which we just have to overcome, but it's really challenging. Many patients read about these drugs on the internet and they hear about horrendous side effects that may or may not be accurately portrayed. And so they come in skeptical and afraid and just are distrusting. And so it's hard. And many of them have never heard about their cholesterol before they see us. So these are part of the challenges that makes uh, treating patients with dyslipidemia so difficult and as is evident in the patient we just described. Well, let's just review what I've talked about, okay? So patients with a recent acute coronary syndrome are at risk for further events, right? And for mortality being higher. And aggressive lipid-lowering therapy is recommended. What proportion of these patients receive lipid-lowering therapy in the United States? I'll give you a moment to think about that question and maybe provide an answer. Well, the data I shared showed the correct answer here is about 30%, maybe a little higher, but it's about 30%, which is quite surprising. And this includes those who get the drug prescribed but are not adherent, as well as just forgetting to prescribe it as we rush them out of the hospital on day two following their myocardial infarction. Well, let's talk now about screening ASCVD risk assessment and initiating therapy in patients with hyperlipidemia. And let's use a case example. So this is Kimberly, a woman of about 60 years of age who comes to the office. Her medical history is that she developed type 2 diabetes at age 55. Because of her obesity, she has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and unfortunately mild cirrhosis. 
and she's followed by a GI specialist who recommended she see us today. She has GERD, hypertension. She has a carotid stenosis of 70%. She was a former smoker who quit about a year ago. And she went to a county fair and had a CAC screening exam at a health fair, and her CAC score was 355 years ago. And so she comes now with evidence of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, coronary disease, and cerebral vascular disease. The family history is the father had heart disease, the mother had stroke, both are now deceased. So both died, if we will, of an ASCVD issue. Her weight is 278 pounds or 126 kilos. Her hemoglobin A1C is 7.4%, so a bit elevated. Her blood pressure is well-controlled on medication. Her total cholesterol is 234. Her HDL is 54. Her triglycerides are elevated, consistent with her diabetes at 160. And her LDL is 148. Fortunately, her kidney function is reasonably good, and her liver enzymes are normal today, thankfully. And she's taking 100 units of Glargine twice a day, so huge dose of long-acting insulin. She's on semaglutide, uh, one milligram every week, but hasn't lost weight, unfortunately. And she's on other medications, as you can see, treating her various medical conditions. She's a new patient to us. She had a recent change in insurance. And she would like us to refill some of her prescriptions to save an office visit with her primary. And you and I have talked to her about her cholesterol, but she says nobody ever mentioned it. It was a problem. It's pretty good, right? And I think we would all agree it's maybe not very good. So what risk category would you assign to Kimberly from an ASCVD standpoint? Is she low risk, moderate risk at her age, high risk, very high risk, or extremely high risk? Okay, well, I would assign Kimberly high risk, and I'll justify that in just a few minutes. Some of you may feel that she's very high or extremely high risk, and I think from a standpoint of using guideline documents to help understand how we should treat her, let's just for now assume that high risk is the best possible answer. Now, we need to be screening cholesterol more frequently. Kimberly was an example of someone who had some testing, but no one discussed the results with her. I mean, for children and adolescents, it's recommended now that they should be screened at age two if they come from a family with FH or premature ASCVD defined as under age 40. Certainly all children in their preteen years should be screened at least once for dyslipidemia and again in their uh, teenage to young adulthood years. And adults over age 20 should be screened about every five years if they're low risk for ASCVD and more frequently if they have risk factors for ASCVD. And these risk factors can include a family history of you know, high cholesterol or ASCVD. They have type 1 or type 2 diabetes at a young age, or they're significantly overweight for older adults who maybe have an older age or male sex. And then also if they have a known history of high cholesterol, we should screen them. And we do a very inadequate job of screening in children and adolescents. Only about one in four get screened between ages nine and 11. And then in adults, you know, more than 80% are now getting cholesterol, part of routine exams, but maybe not having that knowledge then used to better treat them. Now, many types of high cholesterol exist. It's not just FH. We often focus on the homozygous and heterozygous FH patients, but there are multiple molecular etiologies for autosomal dominant dyslipidemia beyond just heterozygous FH. 
and common hypercholesterolemia, common only because of the culture and diet and lifestyle we live in the West, is uh, really prevalent as well. And some people have, you know, genetic backgrounds, which are an overlay onto this risk. Some have genetic factors, which make them at higher risk. And some will have a genetic factor, which maybe protects them a bit. So it's really tough to sort that out. But that's certainly something that you should keep in mind as you then assess their cardiovascular risks. Again, FH is more common than we realize that uh, about one in 313 patients we screen have FH. So if you screen 500 patients in your practice a year, at least one, if not two, will have FH. And if you look at the patients who present with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, uh, you know, almost 5%, maybe a little more, 6% will have FH. So keep your diagnostic antenna at high gain, so to speak, for looking and trying to figure out FH in the patients that you see. The desirable values certainly in the past few years have been a total cholesterol of less than 200 in all adults, an HDL of more than 40 in men, 50 in women, which largely reflect obesity and lifestyle, a non-HDL that's very low, less than 100 in individuals at high risk, less than 130 in everyone else, an LDL of less than 100 in almost all people. Now, an LDL above 100 is considered abnormal now by almost all guideline documents. And if the patients have multiple risk factors or at high risk, it's less than 70. And if they have very high risk categories, it's less than 55. Triglycerides, normal is now considered less than 150. What I believe and practice is that data from the Prove It trial and Mike Miller's work from the VA now in Philadelphia is that triglycerides greater than 135 are a risk. So I try to keep my patients' triglycerides lower, largely through lifestyle management and weight loss and exercise, and if necessary, medication. So ASCVD risk can be defined in several ways. We have ACC and National Lipid Association criteria, which are similar but not identical. Low risk in both groups is less than 5%. ACC has a borderline risk category, an intermediate, a high, and a very high. And NLA has a moderate, high, and very high and extreme risk categories. And this looks at 10-year risk calculations. And if you use an electronic health record system like EPIC, as we use at Mayo Clinic, I see these now risk categories or risk percentages being calculated in all my patients, and it pops up and shows me as part of the exam. So it's quite helpful. I make my own independent assessment, of course, but you know, I do appreciate having that number because it helps. I think it's really hard in women like in our patient who are 60, they don't hit the calculators as high a risk as I really think they are. Age seems to be protective for them, but I think especially women are being underassessed and the risk is being underappreciated by using simply these numerical 10-year risk amounts. And secondly, I would say that for many of our patients, they expect to live more than 10 years. If I'm talking with even a 70-year-old today in practice, they're asking about two more decades of life. And so 10-year risk is one category, but I also think it's helpful to think about 30-year risk because many of our patients, if not most, are expecting to live several decades. And so it's not just, can I get you 10 years down the road? It's how can we best help you in your lifetime or in the next 30 years have the lowest possible cardiovascular risks? So a recent expert consensus paper published by the American College of Cardiology, authored first by Dr. Lloyd-Jones from Northwestern and many others, I think has helped frame how we should look at patients in 2023 and beyond. The first category is very high risk, and that's defined as greater than one major atherosclerotic cardiovascular event or one event and multiple high-risk conditions. Now, what are the events and what are the high-risk conditions? 
So the events would be a recent ACS within 12 months, a history of MI, a history of ischemic stroke, or symptomatic peripheral arterial disease, you know, claudication with a proven ABI that's at least modest disease. So those are what's defined as major ASCVD events. And so if your patient has had two of those, then they are very high risk. Or if they've had one of those, then plus any of these, two or more of these high risk conditions. So age greater than 20, which would fit most of our patients, very high LDL, obviously, a history of cabbage or PCI. And so now with an ACS, almost everyone's getting PCI, a type two diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, a current smoker, a high LDL, a history of heart failure. So when we look at our patient that we've had a few minutes ago, she has type two diabetes, she has an elevated LDL, she has a carotid artery disease, and she has treated high blood pressure. Now it's at a good number, but she's on treatment for it. And she was a current smoker until a year ago. So she has four or five of these high-risk conditions. So I have classified her high-risk, and I did not classify her very high-risk because she had not had any of the major ASCVD events. Now, you could argue that type 2 diabetes is the equivalent of an MI, but that's a risk equivalence, not an actual MI. And so she doesn't really meet the criteria, in my opinion, of a major ASCVD event. So this is where we should really aim our targets now. For high-risk individuals, it's an LDL goal of 70. For very high risk, it's less than 55. For primary prevention or a type 2 diabetic uh, who's young, it's goal of 100. Or somebody with a calcium score of greater than 1 but less than 100, it's an LDL of 100. And if the CAC score is greater than 100, as was our patient, then also the LDL goal should be less than 70. So this is why I defined her as high risk. Now, how would we get her lipids into the proper threshold or below the proper threshold into the zone, so to speak? Well, we have lots of therapies today and 20 years ago we didn't, but today we do. And it's a glorious day really to be treating dyslipidemia because we have so many choices now and so many options that really almost every patient should have their lipids well-controlled. We can go back to the 1980s and use bile acid sequestrants. If you're an old-fashioned doctor and you want to use those go right ahead. Most of us have abandoned those because of side effects and use either statins and azetamibe or azetamibe if they have statin intolerance. And now we have a new drug called pimpopidoic acid, which also lowers LDL cholesterol. It's a little less than azetamibe, but it's potent and it's been associated with both secondary and primary prevention outcome data. With regard to injectable therapies, we have monoclonal antibodies to PCSK9, and now we also have a small interfering RNA agent called Inclisiran that can be given less frequently than the monoclonal injection. So we have lots of choices, and all of these really potently reduce LDL cholesterol. It often takes more than one medication to get patients to go. Here's a nice review paper from Branson Ray from a couple of years ago, looking at the various phenotypes of dyslipidemia and what degree of LDL lowering we can get from each of those therapies. And so there you see that it often takes two, sometimes three medications to get patients to go. So the ACC guidelines in 2022 removed age restrictions. So now if you're over 75, they recommend at least moderate intensity statins. I think that's wise advice given the potential for muscle aches and symptoms in that age group. And this is sort of a nice you know, chart to keep as a treatment aid on your wall if you're ever not sure about the threshold to treat. 
So let's go back to Kimberly. As we mentioned earlier, she's 60 years of age. She has type 2 diabetes, a former smoker. She just quit a year ago. She's got hypertension, a carotid stenosis. Uh, Her obesity has triggered non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and mild cirrhosis. And she has evidence of coronary artery plaque with a CAC score of 350. And so her LDL goal would be less than 70, and she currently is at 148. So we need to reduce her LDL by 50 to 60%. And her 10-year risk calculates only 8.7%. But I would argue that maybe we should think 30-year risk for Kimberly, because she's 60, and she's a lot more likely to live more than 10 years than not. And so I think we should consider what to do next with her. So what type of lipid-lowering therapy would you recommend for Kimberly? Now, let me go back up for just a moment. She's not taking any lipid-lowering medication. The bottom left are the medications, insulin, uh, semaglutide, axamine, lactulose, famotidine, metoprolol, chlorthalidone. So you have total choice here of any lipid-lowering therapy. So the choices really are a high-intensity statin, moderate-intensity statin, moderate intensity statin now, up titration if needed, non-statin therapy like azetamibe or bimpopidoic acid, or lifestyle, right? Kimberly, you need to go lose the weight, exercise, go on a vegan or Mediterranean diet and really try to get the lipids down. So I think that probably the most rational choice for her at this time, being someone very new to statins, is to start her on a moderate intensity statin dose and then make a decision to up titrate later and potentially add you know, something like azetamibe or a PCSK9 drug if needed. So Kimberly did start resuvastatin. It was 10 milligrams, and that's a potent statin, but at a very good starting dose with very few side effects. And she returns, and you can see that her LDL has dropped. It's down to 103. This is on the right-hand side now on the green sticky note. And her total LDL was 148 prior to resuvastatin. So she had about a 40% reduction, which is what you would predict with uh, 10 milligrams of resuvastatin. And she's willing to try a little higher dose. So we inched it up to 20 milligrams and she's going to come back in a few weeks time to see how her lipids are doing. And it's likely we'll just get that LDL down to about 97 with that higher dose of restuvastatin, maybe to 90, and she's still going to need something else, but she's not ready. And we have to take into account patient preferences and cultural preferences. And Kimberly just is one who I think you can see has some medicine fatigue. She's taking a lot and she's tired and she doesn't want too much at once right now. Well, Kimberly left the office and uh, two weeks after that visit and dose escalation, she presented to the emergency room at the hospital. She had fallen off a stepladder where she had been doing some work. In fact, uh, she took our advice to be more active and busy uh, seriously and was dusting and cleaning some shelves that required the use of a stepladder and she fell. And the emergency room questioned her about muscle weakness and discovered that she had some weakness in the arms and legs and some soreness in the muscles since the statin dose had been started and then uh, the uptitration just really intensified things. The emergency room evaluation uncovered that her uh, creatinine phosphokinase was elevated at 1,800, not high enough to technically diagnose rhabdo, but instead to just at least acknowledge some muscle injury. And her liver function tests had gone up as well. And so these were attributed to the statin dose. And so she was encouraged to stop the current dose of her statin and to reach back to us to talk about what the next steps would be. 
So what we know is that if we discontinue the statin, generally patients recover. What about her? And what about statin intolerance with muscle symptoms? Well, what we know is that when statins cause muscle injury, you can have either myopathy, as our patient did with soreness and weakness and a CK that's elevated, but not to the extent of being diagnosed with rhabdomyolysis. And that risk is about one in 10,000. So it's quite low, but it is real for any patient. And rhabdomyolysis would be a CK that's dramatically increased with evidence of myoglobinuria and generally acute renal failure and an incidence that fortunately is extremely rare. And so while our patient had some statin-associated muscle injury, she did not have any signs of kidney injury or myoglobinuria, so she was saved from that. But she clearly had developed statin intolerance with the muscle soreness and aches, the weakness that she had. She then had some evidence of muscle injury with her CK elevation. And, you know, we really needed to treat that situation and to manage her appropriately. And what do we do? for managing lipids after that. Well, the National Lipid Association has a wonderful algorithm or chart that we can all follow, and it gives us lots of choices. You can re-challenge her in a few weeks to a lower dose of resuvastatin, maybe five, to see if she can tolerate it, or she could be switched to a different statin like pravastatin or fluvastatin, pitavastatin, but certainly not simvastatin. Way too many drug, drug interactions there. We could add a non-statin to her. And this is why these drugs have been designed, really. You know, uh, she could get a PCSK9 drug. She could get bempopidoic acid. She could have azetamibe. She could have azetamibe with any of those choices, including enclisiran. So she really has had significant harm from the higher dose resuvastatin and needs some time to be off it. So let's say that Kimberly has been off resuvastatin now for a couple of months. She comes back to the office. She feels good. She's still going up on that stepladder, but now without muscle soreness. And she's a little hesitant to go back on 20 of resuvastatin, as you can imagine, and not that you've even suggested it, but what would you do for her? Would you say, well, let's try five of resuvastatin, maybe even less frequently than daily? Would you say, oh, Kimberly, we got to get you back on lipid therapy. Let's try a Torvatin or fluvastatin. Or would you say, let's try a low-dose resuva and add azetamibe? Or would you say, no statin at all. We're just going to do non-statin therapy, right? Bempopidoic acid, azetamibe, or maybe enclisiran or evolocumab. Or you need more time off. Let's let you recover, get well, let you heal psychologically and physically from all of this. Let's check again in six months. So which of these would you vote for, for Kimberly? Well, I would recommend non-statin therapy only. I am a bit skittish about restarting people on any statin once they've had rhabdo because we don't really know fully why statins trigger rhabdo, except there's clearly direct toxicity in the skeletal muscle. And so I find it's just easier, safer, and I sleep better at night if I use non-statin therapy. So again, Kimberly comes in, we have those discussions. She comes back eight or nine weeks after initial visit on azetamibe and a PCSK9 drug because we know that her LDL is going to go back up where it was and that she needs about a 60% reduction to get her at a goal of 70, maybe 55 to 60. And so we can't get there with azetamibe alone. We cannot get there with azetamibe plus and pepopidoic acid alone generally. So I recommended that she be on a PCSK9 drug and azetamibe. So let's talk about PCSK9s and why the one that was picked was picked for her. Well, most of the regulation of cholesterol levels is done by the LDL receptor in the liver cell. 
Some, of course, is done by the endogenous pool of cholesterol inside the liver cell, where there's regulation through the HMG-CoA synthase and reductase pathways. And that's how statins work, of course. But, you know, azetamide produces cholesterol absorption in the gut so that there's less coming by the liver from the bile. So the liver has to pump more cholesterol into the bile and less in plasma. And then the PCSK9 drugs work by altering the lifespan of the LDL receptor in a favorable way, meaning that the LDL receptor stays longer on the surface of the liver. And that occurs either by using a monoclonal antibody to bind PCSK9 and plasma or inhibiting the translation of PCSK9 protein inside the liver through a small interfering RNA drug called enclisiran. Now, the way that it works is that when LDL and the PCSK9 protein bind together and are taken up by the LDL receptor, that results in the PCSK9 receptor being destroyed. But if the LDL is taken up without a PCSK9 protein, you can see that the LDL receptor is then recycled back to the liver surface. Almost all of the PCSK9 therapies, which lower plasma PCSK9 levels, either by inhibiting its synthesis like enclisiran or absorbing it or binding it like with evolocumab and alirocumab, result in a prolongation of the lifespan of the LDL receptor. And if you have a loss of function genetic mutation for PCSK9, one of the lucky ones, then you also have more LDL receptors on your surface. And this is really a schematic for how all of this works. So you can see that if there's less PCSK9 available to bind to the LDL receptor on the right hand of your screen, those receptors go in, they get recycled back to the surface, right? And if you're in glycerin, then you actually have a galnec moiety. It's a carbohydrate moiety on the end of the double-stranded glycerin, and that then allows it to bind to the ASGPR or acyaloglycoprotein receptor on the liver, which is a well-preserved and widely expressed liver receptor that multiple medications are now using to ensure access exclusively to the liver. And then the sense and antisense strands of glycerin separate, and the antisense strand binds into the RNA inhibitory complex, the risk complex. So when the message RNA for PCSK9 is seen inside the liver cell, the antisense strand binds it. And through an amplification of a thousand to 10,000 fold, the risk complex then destroys the, piece, the message RNA for PCSK9. And so the body just secretes or synthesizes much less PCSK9 in the Golgi apparatus. And that's a beautiful discovery that happened about 1999 or 2000 with regard to the uh, risk complex. And then in the mid 2000s with the development of therapies, which could inhibit it like glycerin. And so it's a very effective way to not fully, but you know, 70, 80% inhibit synthesis of PCSK9 as a way to really control dyslipidemia. Well, we have a choice with PCSK9 targeting therapies, and this slide is a very nice summary of the available therapies today. As you can see, all of the therapies have indications for the use in primary prevention as an adjunct to diet, and especially in adults with heterozygous FH. With regard to secondary prevention, alirocumab and evolocumab have at least one secondary prevention outcome trial that has shown with each agent a reduction in MACE often defined as risk of recurrent myocardial infarction, death, stroke, 
and unstable angina requiring hospitalization. And in the case of alirocamab, I think a resuscitated cardiac arrest was part of the secondary prevention MACE endpoint. And Clisaran, while not yet shown with secondary prevention because the two outcome trials are ongoing, does have some safety data that I'll share a little later in this talk, which would suggest that there's certainly an association between randomization to enclisiran and reduction in MACE as a safety endpoint, but not as a full-blown proven secondary prevention benefit. So I think uh, for all of these drugs, we can prescribe them for patients with dyslipidemia. And certainly in secondary prevention, the evidence is strongest to date with alirocamab and evolocamab. It sure appears to me that regardless of therapy, whether it's bempipedoic acid, azetamibe, enclisiran, alirocamab, evolocamab, or statins, the degree of LDL lowering really drives the risk reduction for secondary and or primary prevention. And with statins, there's likely an anti-inflammatory component. In fairness, bempipedoic acid and maybe azetamibe, I believe, have also been shown to reduce CRP. Now, if we look at LDL reductions for the monoclonals, on the left is the Odyssey Outcomes trial with alirocamab, and on the right is the Fourier trial with evolocamab. You can achieve extremely low LDL levels on patients. Now, the patients had to be on high-dose statin. Initially, I think it was 80 milligrams of atorva, but they lowered it to 40 milligrams in Odyssey Outcomes. But they had to be on high-dose, high-intensity statins after an ACS event or in Fourier with a recent MI would count or an ASCVD event and have an on-treatment LDL of still greater than 70. And so these patients started with a median LDL of around 90 to 95. Then with alirocamab, it was reduced down to less than 45 initially, and then it sort of crept back up a little bit toward the end of the trial. With evolocamab, they reduced it down to almost 30 milligrams per deciliter. And then it, of course, crept back up toward 40 over the length of the trial. So both of these drugs showed very potent lowering of LDL. And with alirocamab, 61% mean reduction at 12 months. With evolocamab, a 59% reduction at 48 weeks, almost 12 months. So both, again, were very effective at lowering LDL. The same has been shown with enclisiran, and in full disclosure, I was PI of the Orion 10 trial and responsible for leading in this study. My friend, Dr. Ray, was PI of Orion 11, and we published our combined data in the New England Journal in 2020. And again, with Orion 10, which included patients only with ASCVD, all on statins, if they could tolerate statins, and if not, other oral lipid-lowering therapy, and maybe 6% were on statins with azetamibe, we showed a 52-plus percent reduction in LDL at day 510, and then about the same average reduction over the entire duration of the study. And in Orion 11, there was almost a 50% reduction in LDL versus placebo at day 510, and again, about a 50% mean reduction over time. So again, very potent reductions in LDL, comparable to what's with the monoclonals. And when we add in the patients with heterozygous FH, Orion 9, read by our colleague, Dr. Rao from South Africa, you can see that there was a time-adjusted 57% reduction in LDL and a percent change at day 510 of 56%. So again, very potent in a broad population of patients. Now, why is this important? Well, this is why it's important. This is initial data from the first cut of the Fourier data looking at post hoc analyses with regard to degree of LDL lowering, and what were the event rates? So if one looked at the primary composite endpoint, as you see on the left, for every 
bit more of LDL reduction your patient achieved with evolocumab and a statin, there was further event reduction. So if you had a uh, on-treatment LDL of 155, you would have about an 18% event rate at the endpoint. And if you had an on-treatment LDL of 20 milligrams per deciliter, you had about a 12% event rate over time. And there was a slight inflection point with an LDL of about 70. But then with the secondary composite endpoints, there was just a pure linear curve going down. And this was sort of the first and very convincing data that maybe taking LDLs to lower than 70 in very high-risk patients, i.e. those with recent ACS or an ACS in the last year, would be very important. And so they did an open-label extension with Fourier and then prospectively analyzed uh, how low they could take LDL and whether that impacted clinical events. So it went sort of like this. If you were in the parent Fourier trial, you were invited to participate in the open-label extension. And if you were on placebo, you were transitioned to evolocumab. And if you were on evolocumab, you continued on it. So by 12 weeks after the start of open-label extension, almost everyone had very low LDL cholesterol. You can see that it was between a half a millimolar and a millimolar, or 40 and 80. So it's, we'll say, 60 to 70 milligrams per deciliter there. And so it was quite low. And you can see that at week 260, they were down to LDLs of almost 30, a little bit less than 30 milligrams per deciliter. And when they looked at primary endpoints, they started to see event reductions that continued in those who were on evolocumab and stayed on evolocumab in the left-hand graph. And if you were part of the open-label extension and going from placebo to evolocumab, you too sort of had a bending of that event curve so that you had benefit, even though you started several years later than those who were always on evolocumab. And the secondary endpoints sort of followed the same pattern there. So a benefit, even with later treatment with aggressive LDL reduction. And if one looks at the degree of LDL lowering and cardiovascular mortality alone, you can see that many patients had LDLs that were certainly below 60 milligrams per deciliter and with a substantial number who had LDLs on treatment of 40 and even as low as maybe 15 or 10 milligrams per deciliter. And you can see that if you achieve the lowest LDLs on the top right, you had the lowest rates of a combined endpoint of cardiovascular death, stroke, hospital admission for unstable angina, or the need for coronary revascularization. And that an LDL of above 55 had higher event rates than an LDL below 55. And sure, if you got it below 20, you had the lowest event rates, but even getting it in the 40 milligram per deciliter range, you had lower event rates compared to those above 55 milligrams per deciliter, as you can see in the dark blue and light blue graphs. And the same is true for just the endpoint of CV death, MI, or stroke, again, favoring aggressively lowering LDL. Now, was there a price that was paid for such aggressive lowering of LDL with regard to muscle events, new onset diabetes, hemorrhagic stroke? Not really. Those numbers were very comparable to those who did not have aggressive LDL lowering. Injection site reactions also were present, but not a problem. And drug-related allergic reactions were not a problem. So again, a very nice safety profile in the open-label extension of the long-term safety with Fourier. Now, the Inclisiran program also tested this. We designed a study many years ago to say, what happens if a patient on evolocumab, for whatever reason, decides to switch 
from every two-week PCSK9 treatment to twice yearly using Enclisiran, which is a twice yearly drug in general. When you start, it's on days zero and 90, and then every six months after that. So that's why we say twice yearly. And you can see that the Orion 3 trial included some individuals on placebo from the Orion 1 trial, but then added a smaller number of patients who had been given evolocumab for a year and then were switched to open-label Enclisiran. We again saw potent reductions in LDL in those who were switched to open-label extension Enclisiran in the top graph, or those who were on evolocumab, they had comparable LDL reductions. Now, in fairness, the Evolocumab took the LDL down about 60 and Enclisiran about 50 to 55. So that's why I say comparable. Was Evolocumab slightly more potent? Probably. But it's very comparable and it's at the benefit of a twice yearly injection on average as opposed to every two weeks. The data from Orion 3 showed great safety. There was no signal of any harm with liver or with muscle in any regard. These patients just did not have any side effects that were above what was seen in all of the randomized trials. And when one looks at the incidence of serious adverse events, Enclisiran and placebo are superimposable. Serious adverse events or any adverse events leading to discontinuation, placebo and Enclisiran were comparable. So what we can say is that for secondary prevention, both of the monoclonal drugs have strong evidence that it reduces MACE. Enclisiran is awaiting some cardiovascular outcome trials with Victorian 2 Prevent and Orion 4. There is some supporting evidence, however, from the safety analyses of Orion 9, 10, and 11 that there may be a benefit. But again, it's a hypothesis-driven observation, not a definitive answer yet. And you can see what the risk reduction was across alirocumab, evolocumab, and at least what observed risk reductions have been in enclisiran while we're waiting on the properly powered and managed outcomes trials. In all of these trials, patients were on maximally tolerated statin therapy. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that if they could tolerate high-dose, high-intensity statin, they stayed on it. And if they could not tolerate high-dose, high-intensity statin, the investigators were allowed to down-titrate the statin to what they could tolerate. Or if they could tolerate no statin, then they didn't have any statin at all. This is a safety analysis we did as part of uh, the Orion evaluation, which looked at the incidence of MACE defined as you know mortality, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And it showed a 25% relative risk reduction or an absolute risk reduction there of almost 2% between those who were given placebo in the phase two and phase three lipid-lowering trials and those who were given enclisiran. Now, this does not definitively prove secondary or primary prevention, but I think this is certainly a signal in the right direction and gives us confidence that the outcome trials, which are properly powered, have a good chance of determining any benefit of secondary and primary prevention with enclisiran. Now, these drugs also improve plaque. There have been a number of very interesting studies, and they have fun names like Pac-Man AMI and Architect and Glagoff and Yellow 3 And all of those have shown that uh, there are favorable changes on cardiovascular or carotid plaques with treatment with the PCSK9 drug. And Enclisiran has been tested in some preclinical studies, and there are some phase three plaque studies now going on with it which likely will show very similar data to the monoclonal antibodies. And that plaque regression can occur with lowering LDL and may be an incentive for some people to consider going on a PCSK9 drug. 
What are the most frequent side effects from using a PCSK9 drug? Well, we have them listed here. Nasopharyngitis seems to be a common, both in placebo and in treatment. Injection site reactions, about 5 to 7% with alirocumab. 6% versus 5 with ebolocumab and, you know, 8% versus 2% with enclisiran. So almost all of these are single events happening in mild to moderate itchiness, redness, or whatever. But again, it's something to caution your patients about. And who benefits the most from PCSK9 inhibition? Well, we have a robust body of evidence now looking at a variety of things. One of my favorite studies is by my friend from Fowder Jukuma from Leiden, Netherlands, which looked at polyvascular disease in patients in the Odyssey Outcomes trial. And he showed a 77% reduction in death in patients who have carotid artery disease, peripheral arterial disease, coronary artery disease, previous cabbage, just combining several polyvascular states, you get a profound reduction. Recent MI patients benefit, prior multiple MIs benefit, multivessel disease benefits, even those with an elevated lipoprotein benefit, as you can see from Dr. Schwartz's paper from Odyssey Outcomes, the diabetic and metabolic syndrome patients benefit. And uh, even with peripheral arterial disease, there's a, almost a 40 plus percent reduction in limb events, which I think is very important. So a broad variety of patients will benefit from PCSK9 inhibition. And do these drugs work in the real world? I mean, we've tested them in clinical trials, right? And everyone shows their best benefit in a clinical trial, even on placebo. But what about in the real world? Well, again, this is data from Canada showing that great percentage of patients can get, achieve an LDL of less than 70 on a PCSK9 drug. And substantial numbers can achieve an LDL of less than 55 when you combine two oral therapies with a PCSK9 drug. And this slide will show you what statin alone will do, low-intensity statins will do. And again, moderate or low-intensity statins just don't achieve these LDL numbers despite our hopes in most patients. And so we have to use combination therapy or a PCSK9 with the statin and frequently with azetamibe. So really, I hope one of the take-home messages today for all of you is that to really get many patients to a low LDL, it's going to take three drugs, two orals and an injectable. And now you have the benefit of really having up to three oral agents that you can prescribe and then one injectable. So we should be able to get almost all patients there with four drugs, but many can get there with three drugs alone. What are the best practices in obtaining access to PCSK9 targeting therapies? And in full transparency, this is still a challenge for many of us. The key concept is that thorough documentation is the key to success. You need to understand the product labels for any of the compounds, enclisiran, evolocumab, or alirocumab, and make sure that your patient meets the FDA-approved indications. And then document and demonstrate that to the insurance company as you go through the prescribing process and or the appeal process. It's important to document that if they have statin intolerance, that they have tried statins. Many companies have requested, for example, that we demonstrate at least intolerance to three statins, which seems like a lot. And of course, if your patient has had statin-associated muscle injury, you may only try one, but it's important to document and to demonstrate that. One academic medical center has reported a 97% approval rate for getting PCSK9 coverage, which is remarkable, really. And in 28% of those cases, they had to do an appeal or a second letter. And I think that's true for my experience. I often have to write one or two letters with the company. And then there are times 
more frequent than I care to admit that the company declines to cover the uh, product. Finally, it's important to point out that within Clisaran, this is a physician-administered medication. So you have to administer it in your office or your medical center's infusion center or in a freestanding infusion center under your guidance. While Evolocumab and Alirocumab are prescription medications that require the patient to pick them up from a pharmacy and then self-administer those agents every two weeks to themselves. And you may have to have the patient come in to sort of teach them or have your nurse teach them how to do the injections. So we have today one small interfering RNA and two monoclonal antibodies, more are on the way. They both lower PCSK9, two by binding it in plasma, one by inhibiting its production. The small interfering RNAs work inside the hepatocyte. The monoclonals work in the plasma outside. You get a 50% reduction with enclisiran and a 50 to 60% reduction with the monoclonals. Lipoproteins reduced about 25% with all three of these therapies. The healthcare provider must administer enclisiran while the patient self-administers the monoclonals. The injection sites are subcutaneous for both. The monoclonals are every two weeks generally. You can do an infusion with one for every four weeks, but none of my patients have wanted to try that. They thought it was too intimidating, so they do self-injections every two weeks. While with enclisiran, it's on days one and 90, and then every six months after that. Most common side effects are injection site reactions. And the annual costs are listed here. In general now, Enclisiran is about 6500 a year, and the monoclonals have a list price of 5850 So when we talk about Kimberly, she was someone who did not have a cardiac event, but with the CACs, you could technically argue she had coronary atherosclerosis. Well, Kimberly now returns to the office after the ER admission and hospital discharge with questions about what happened and what are the next steps for treating uh, the dyslipidemia. Fortunately, the hospitalist discontinued the statin at the time of admission and then suggested she visit with us about uh, how to better treat her dyslipidemia, recognizing she had statin-associated muscle injury. But for her, based on what you know about her medical history, which PCSK9 might you select? And I don't think there's any single answer that's absolutely correct, all are reasonable. Would you go with alirocumab, evolocumab, or would you try enclisiran? After discussions, she decided to try to go with the simplest procedure for injections, and she chose enclisiran and then azetamide. But again, it was a, a thorough discussion and a background about whether her insurance would cover it or the monoclonal antibodies. We had a lengthy discussion and talked about the risks of recurrent muscle injury and I think for Kimberly, the muscle pains, the weakness, and then the fall were just too much to even consider rechallenging with a different statin at a lower dose. And so we made the decision to prescribe anclisiran and azetamibe after the visit. And she went home with those therapies. And I believe that we will see her LDL quite low. And indeed, it was 54 when she returned. So it had achieved her goal of less than 70. So we were there with azetamibe and enclisiran. She did not have any muscle symptoms or rhabdomyolysis present. And she was tolerating both azetamibe and enclisiran without difficulty and was quite happy. Now, when should we next test lipids for her? Should we do it in three more months? Should we do it at the next injection? Should we do it in a year? Well, I think it's important to recognize that with enclisiran, there is a time-dependent escape back to baseline. So LDLs go down 50 to 55% within a couple of weeks of injection, and then they try to escape back. 
because the drug wears off, as you can imagine. And over the next six months, if you were to check it, her LDL might go up into the 40 to 45 range. So I typically like to check this with patients a couple times a year. I bring them back in generally before the three-month injection so we can see how we're doing. And then about once a year after that is all that I do. More often, of course, if they have symptoms or concerns. So I think we can agree today that we know the data about statins. It reduces death and CV events, but many patients with high and or very high risk just don't get them. And the patients who have genetic dyslipidemias, homozygous or heterozygous FH, are disproportionately represented in cardiology practice because they're having events and they come to see us. And we need to understand how we can treat them with a variety of medications to get to a lower LDL. I think we can also say that the data largely shows that PCSK9 targeting therapies, whether it's in Clisaran or monoclonals with evolocumab and alirocumab, are highly effective, they're safe, and that they can be used in combination with all other lipid-lowering treatments to reduce LDL levels. What are my takeaway points for you? Well, understand the risk of the patient. Are they high risk, very high risk? So you know the LDL threshold to aim for, whether it's 70 or 55. And in someone for primary prevention, it's going to almost always be 100, if not lower to 70 if they have risk factors. And so how do we get there? Just sort of look at what percent LDL reduction your first oral therapy will do and decide, is that enough? Or should I maybe start them on combination therapy of azetamib and rosuvastatin, azetamib or atorvastatin to try to get to that LDL goal? I think patients like success. They like to feel they're getting success. And so I like to get people to LDL goal as quickly as possible. Or if I believe it's just not feasible to get them to an LDL goal they need with oral therapy, I'll at least set the stage in discussions that say we may have to go to injectable therapies. I think right now we can say that uh, the small interfering RNAs for sort of the new kids on the block, so to speak, for treating dyslipidemia, they bind the ASGPR receptor, take the therapy right into the liver cell, and thus regulate cholesterol levels quite effectively. I would expect that there will be other small interfering RNAs developed. There are other medication classes undergoing testing now, including the cholesterol ester transfer protein family. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot of therapies which target issues in the liver to treat cardiovascular diseases, including hypertension, because even this summer, there was a paper published about a new drug which inhibits angiotensin II using small interfering RNA technology. So stay tuned. We're now into the decade or the era of RNA-based therapies, and it's going to be an exciting one for our patients so that we can offer them additional opportunities for treatment of their dyslipidemia. Well, thanks for watching this educational series and joining us. I would look forward to hearing from you if you have comments or questions and appreciate uh, the time you've invested. And I hope that it's been helpful for you as you think about how to treat dyslipidemia with statins and beyond and to get patients to the new LDL goals that our societies recommend. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EEG. 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids.